Your boredom is over because we're just getting started here on most shows recap here on Post Show Recaps. And now here are the guys who are more obsessed with pop culture than Judge Lance Ito. I'm Rob Cicerini. Here's Antonio Mazzaro. Rob, did you see who left us a comment last week? Who? It's Arsenio. Arsenio? Wow. Yeah, is he he relevant anymore? It doesn't matter because he left us a comment. Celebrity Apprentice winner. uh, Potential maybe running mate for Donald Trump? Who knows? Uh, So yeah, super relevant Arsenio. Yeah, super relevant. He is in the house. No, this is uh, Lance Ito, media superstar Lance Ito. Yeah, Yeah. I see what you're doing. I hear you, Rob. (laughs) Yeah, so we are ready to go. And ready to talk about the people versus OJ Simpson, a catch up. So many people have been asking us to talk more about this show. So here we are. We had a week where uh, not too much going on in terms of new shows. And also, uh, Josh Wiggler is on assignment celebrating his uh, very happy birthday this week. So uh, while he is out and about, we are going to be catching up on OJ. Six episodes into The People versus O.J. Simpson on FX. Going to take a lot of your questions also along the way. Very excited to talk about this with Antonio, who knows uh, so much about the O.J. case. Yes. Uh, first of all, happy birthday to Josh Wiggler. He's in California, as I understand it. Hopefully he manages to stay away from any criminal uh, issues. Uh, he doesn't want to end up at the trial of the century part two. We don't want to see Josh on TV talking about when he heard a dog barking or I was just eating my pizza when all of a sudden this thing happened. We don't want that for Josh. So Josh, please keep your nose clean out there in California. Uh, <laughs> right. Things can happen, Rob. Am I right? Things could happen. Would you be the Al Cowlings to uh, Josh's OJ? I'm AC Mazzaro. <laughs> you know, who I am. Damn it. That's absolutely what would happen, Rob. I would, I would take, <laughs> if Josh was sitting in the back seat with a disguise and he wanted me in a passport and he wanted me to drive him to Mexico, I'm down for that. We can do that. Yes. We already, listen, I don't know if you know this, Rob. We already had some um, some issues in upstate New York at one time, and we were headed toward Canada. So uh, Mexico is not that much of a different scenario. Yeah. Okay. So uh, let's talk about uh, the people versus OJ Simpson here today on Most Shows Recapped. Of course, you could also subscribe to our Most Shows Recapped podcast feed by going to postshowrecaps.com slash MSR iTunes. And we always appreciate the feedback and comments there. Or... You can subscribe to the full boat, everything we're doing here on post-show recaps, including me and Antonio talking about Better Call Saul every week by subscribing to the main feed of post-show recaps. So People versus O.J. Simpson, six episodes in. I had not been following it every single Tuesday. I sort of had been watching an episode here or there, and then I binged the last couple episodes, uh, which I had not seen. Can I just say real quick that I had a problem with my direct TV. I don't know if anybody else had had this problem where the ends of the episodes kept getting cut off. I had to keep going back to the FX app and watching like the last couple episodes that these episodes that were over an hour, they all kept getting cut off on my direct TV. Oh my gosh. What's going on there? Is your direct TV not hooked up to the internet or they just not want you to see the, the drama of the last 15 minutes? Did you, did you have this problem with Sons of Anarchy, Rob? Weren't every one of those Sons of Anarchy episodes like 40 minutes longer than they were supposed to be? This Did that is ever the happen? first show where I just have this issue where it even says like it's an hour and 15 minutes and then it just cuts off like at, at the end. So I don't know what's going on with it seems like a direct TV issue because it's only happening uh, with that show. But anyway, that might just be a MP and not an anybody else's P. So uh, here we go. Six episodes in, Antonio. What's your takeaway? Your feelings on People versus OJ Simpson? I think a, a lot of people are saying this is absolutely appointment television. I know a lot of people tweet it live. I think it really is coming off that way. I know you're you're caught up on a binge, so I'm interested to hear your thoughts about you know watching a couple back to back. Did it play better that way? 
Um, I love the fact that uh, you can watch these week to week. It started off with a bang, uh, you know, or a cut, I guess, but a bang. Uh, it started off, you know, with the really hot episodes, with the actual murder, you know, scene discovery itself, with the Bronco chase in the second episode. Those are two, like, absolutely minute-by-minute live uh, fantastic episodes. The rest of these episodes, I think, have played out a little differently. They focus on character, uh, key moments from the trial. And I think, depending on the character they're focusing on, some of them are more successful than others. Uh, But I thought this past week's, especially Marsha, 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 was a fantastic episode. Yeah, I agree. I think that this week's episode was a high point in the series. And that's why I also feel like where I was kind of so-so on this show early on, I think that the focus more in these last two episodes, really, uh, onto Johnny Cochran and then this week onto Marsha Clark, I feel like that that has been far more compelling than a lot of the stuff that we were dealing with in the first couple of weeks of the show when we were dealing with the main characters being Shapiro, being Robert Kardashian, I felt like that those were probably the most cartoonish people in the show. But I really think that as we focused on the two lawyers, specifically the episode on Marsha Clark, I think she is far and away uh, the most interesting character on the show. Yeah. And Sarah Paulson is killing it. I mean, she's absolutely knocking it all the way out of the park. So that helps. And so is, I mean, so is uh, Courtney B. Vance as Johnny Cochran, like those two performances, when you're talking about the episodes that focus on them, I think we're going to get a lot more of Christopher Darden going forward and Sterling K. Brown is doing great there. So those three really central performances are the, the, the strength of the show. And I think that as we've turned to those performances, the show is compelling, not just because the trial is very pulpy and kind of uh, popcorny and fun to remember, uh, but that because those three performances are really great uh, and focusing and falling back on those three dramatically and the nuance that they're bringing to the roles is doing uh, a lot of favors for the show. It's really really doing well. And the less Kardashians, the better, I think seems to be the, uh, the focus. It's funny. People couldn't even, don't even want to keep up with them back then, Rob. It's how I live my life. Less Kardashians, <laughs> the better. Yes, exactly. So that is a, probably a good mantra to live by for sure. And that I think is uh, it's playing out on this show. And I've, I've seen people remarking about that, uh, that they feel like with not having those sorts of things and not having the focus, as you're saying, on maybe the more cartoonish or, uh, broad kind of characters, the better off. I guess what we're saying, Rob, is unlike the guys in the garage on this past episode, we don't think they should put Kato back, Kato back on the show. No, uh, that's that's fine. <laughs> yeah. That's fine. I mean, this episode, I felt like you really, it really humanized uh, Marsha Clark here, and you know, you remember all these people as just sort of like these characters on a show. At least that's how we perceive them back in the original 1994, 95 version of everything that went on. But just to see everything that Marsha Clark was ultimately going through as being this woman who was divorced and also ha- trying to raise these kids and dealing with this custody battle that was ongoing uh, with her ex-husband and just to have the stress from this trial. I mean, did you feel like that the things that were coming up, like the issues that were going on against her and Darden facing this dream team. Did you feel like was there a lack of resources on their part compared to the firepower that was coming from the other side? I sense a little bit of that for sure. The listen, the prosecution was not without their shortage of experts. Their case was pretty well planned out. There were some key blunders within the context of their case, uh, and some things that they, uh, depending on who you ask, uh, they ignored or they forged on forward in spite of that were not great. I don't think that the lack of resources hurt them significantly. 
Um, the, you know, they, for example, they had, uh, jury consultants. Uh, we saw that in the show. Uh, we saw also in the show that they didn't pay a ton of attention to them. Uh, and so it wasn't as though they didn't have them. They didn't have those resources. They had experts. They had jury consultants. They had those sorts of things. It just, they didn't necessarily focus correctly on them because I think they believed they had a super strong case, which they pretty much did, but they're, they did not, I don't think they were prepared kind of, strategically for what played out uh, for the, you know, the, the choices the defense made and how they responded to the case and how they presented their own case. It just seems like that from what we see in the show that Marsha Clark seems like she's spread so thin. We have the moment in the episode last week where she has to go home uh, because she has to, she doesn't have a babysitter and, and it ends up being a thing which is uh, shown in the courtroom where she ends up blasting uh, Johnny Cochran over that. But it almost feels like to me, like, was there not enough people like working on the case from the side of the prosecution where that they could have, you know, given Marsha Clark more time to be able to deal with personal issues and she wasn't spread so thin where it seems like then she's only sleeping two hours a night because she has to deal with this. It just seems like that the state's resources, I almost feel like should be limitless. And it almost seems like that they just did not have enough people working on it. Yeah, you do run into these problems with state prosecuted cases or federally prosecuted cases. The, the tobacco case is a big, uh, famous example of this, where the government was sort of prosecuting the tobacco makers, and the government just didn't have the resources these companies did. There, I mean, you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars uh, in legal kind of resources on the defense side, and the government just doesn't have that money to spend in part because it's not being allocated. And I think the same thing plays for trials like this. O.J. Simpson can spend whatever he wants. Um, the state has a budget uh, for the entire office and every case they have uh, that doesn't just kind of apply to one particular case. So there are decisions that have to be made. That said, I think the show and we'll talk a, a little bit on this podcast about the differences between what happened in the trial and what was real. I think the show is playing that up a little bit. Um, not to say Marsha didn't have child care issues. I think that did come up in the trial, at least with the Rosa Lopez moment that we saw on the show. Um, there were some comments about that, and she was going through some really tough stuff at home. But I think there were other attorneys that were working in this case besides um, the besides <laughs> besides the heart attack uh, that happened to take uh, to take Bill out of the case, uh, uh, Bill Hodgman out of the case. I think there were other attorneys from their office who were working on the case and who were working with witnesses at different times that we just haven't seen. So it wasn't as though it was just those two throughout. Once Bill was gone. There were other people that were working on the case and even behind the scenes that um, that we just haven't really seen in the story because they're not central to it. And then in addition to uh, the performance from Sarah Paulson as Marsha Clark, uh, the other two real standouts uh, for me have been the uh, Courtney B. Vance as uh, Johnny Cochran and then also the uh, Chris Darden uh, played by uh, Sterling Brown. Uh, why don't we start with John Cochran? Johnny Cochran, I should say, who uh, really had a lot of the fifth episode centered on him and also then his relationship uh, with Darden. And I really felt like coming into this, I was confused in the first episode when we talked about that because I felt like I don't understand why the show is giving Johnny Cochran such a great edit, such a winner's edit, I felt like. And when we talked about the first episode, it was confusing to me because I couldn't wrap my head around why that Here's O.J. Simpson, who I don't think that we're going too far out on a limb saying that he killed two people. O.J. Right. killed two people. Okay. And I don't know if that's a controversial statement or not. And 
here's Johnny Cochran, who is going to help him get away with murder. Like, does that make him an accessory to these terrible crimes that he did? But I think that the show has done such a really good job of showing you the world from Johnny Cochran's uh, perspective and the way that the fifth episode opens up with Johnny Cochran being harassed by the LAPD going back to 1982 and to see the world through his lens. I think that the show's done a really good job of making you understand why Johnny Cochran is who he is in this case. Yeah. And why kind of, he was the right person at the right time to present the case that he presented uh, and why that that was appealing. I think that that's a a really huge deal. If we recall the show started, with footage of Rodney King uh, and the kind of LA riots kind of stuff and the discussions therein. Uh, and all, and that is, you cannot remove the OJ trial from that because that's the backdrop against which this drama was cast. This is the way that this played out. And so I do think it's important to show that Johnny Cochran is not a guy who came in here uh, just sort of starting a flame war, if you will. Uh, he came in with experience. This is not somebody who, was not from California. Uh, his family was not from there. They moved there. Uh, you know, uh, they had relocated there from the South, but he was from there. He was raised there. He, w- he had worked there. Uh, he had had experiences, good and bad, with the LAPD and with people in different departments of um, the prosecutor's office and different places in the city. So he is not coming to this show without a background. Uh, and that background was very important in letting him play the role he did in the case. And so if you're going to do a 10 episode series where you really do a deeper dive on these characters, you have to include that. And not only do you have to include it because it would be wrong to not include it, but it really does paint, as you're saying, a more multidimensional portrait of Johnny Cochran than I think we would remember from just seeing him at the trial. And if the glove doesn't fit, he must acquit. And then seeing Jackie Childs on Seinfeld uh, as sort of the send up of Johnny Cochran. Uh, I, I think really getting a deeper dive into him, not only with his professional life, but his home life. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a, it's fantastic. Like, and of course, uh, as you say, Courtney Vance is just doing such an incredible job of playing all the different shades of this man uh, and, and kind of the, the different ways that he interacts with people, the lengths he's willing to go to, like redecorating OJ's house. Uh, and uh, in, you know, in a very, in a non-funny kind of thing, um, trying to talk to an ex about some domestic violence issues in Johnny Cochran's past, which were very real things that, that were accused or that, that did, you know, that, that record is out there. Like he was accused of those things. So he is a very nuanced guy. And I think we're getting a more nuanced critique or portrayal of his role in the trial. And I think that's fantastic. And the Phil Morris, Jackie Childs character from Seinfeld, I think that probably did such a disservice to Johnny Cochran in terms of like uh, who he was and what he was about. Because, you know, the Seinfeld character, which is a very funny character, is not necessarily he doesn't have an agenda other than money. It seems like uh, that character. And I think that the Johnny Cochran that we're seeing here does not seem to be motivated by dollar signs. Yeah, at least that it's not his main motivation. He was already a rich guy. He was already representing rich people. Uh, but he he was a, he was not afraid to use race in this case and talk about race's role with the police because he he really felt like that needed to be discussed in a trial this high profile uh, when you involve the LAPD and you're involving people like Mark Furman with the history. So I think that that's important. And you're right. As far as an unfair portrayal, we had a question tweeted at us from Don Smiley, 
who asked how we how we will remember Johnny Cochran as the real life Johnny, the Courtney B. Vance portrayal or Jackie Childs. And I think that until now, I would have said Jackie Childs, hands down. But I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that if the Courtney B. Vance portrayal replaces that in my mind, it's probably a good thing. Probably a better thing and probably uh, more accurate uh, historically, <laughs> I would imagine. And then the other character uh, is this Chris Darden character uh, played by uh, Sterling Brown. And I think he's also been really, really good. And I really like that relationship and sort of like that he has to sort of deal with how this case has been so influenced by race and what's going on on the outside and how people are reacting to this and then what's going on in the courtroom with the kind of stuff that uh, Johnny Cochran is talking about and what the OJ legal team is talking about and then him as an African-American having to deal with that. We see this conversation that he's having with his father uh, about that this conversation that he ends up having with uh, Johnny Cochran about, hey, don't don't be the person to uh, do uh, Mark Furman on the stand. Don't, don't be that guy. And was that, you know, advice that was given to him, one black man to another, or was that some sort of uh, Johnny Cochran trying to really throw off Darden? And uh, again, that relationship between Darden and Marsha Clark, I really like the Darden character. Yeah, he's great. Uh, and it, he's playing it kind of just a little bit understated and it's not always 100% clear how sure he is about his motivation how much he's doing because Johnny Cochran's got his goat to a certain extent and has angered him, how much he's doing to prove that he can be a really good lawyer, considering that if we remember the Chris Darden at the beginning of this series, it was no one will notice if I'm not around. I'm not really doing work that anyone appreciates. And then here he is thrust into the case in part because they wanted an African-American man on the team, but also in part because Marsha Clark did think very highly of him as an attorney and has consistently spoken highly of him as an attorney throughout. And he did some fantastic work in the trial. The, the issue with Christopher Darden, the, the person uh, or the attorney, is that he is memorable from the trial for at least one very, very high-profile blunder that we've yet to see on an episode. And so to get to that point uh, where you're not just thinking, well, this guy's in over his skis or he's stupid, well, all these things that Christopher Darden isn't, uh, you don't want it to just come off like Christopher Darden's dumb and he made a dumb mistake or he's rash and he made a rash choice. You have to inform it by everything that's come before it uh, with Johnny Cochran, with the role in the community, with Marsha Clark and with his role as an attorney in general, professionally, regardless of race or relationship. And I think that that's what we're getting out of this Chris Darden character is all of that. So that when these mistakes do happen, we don't just think like a one word thing like dumb or uh, he's an idiot or whatever. We think, well, this is why it happened. All these things that came before it. So they're doing a great job with that. And Sterling Brown is doing a great job. Who are some of the other standouts uh, for you so far through six episodes? <laughs> it's tough because as you put it, uh, we get into the cartoonish portrayals very quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think in some cases that's appropriate. F. Lee Bailey was notoriously just uh, two drinks in every every time he's appearing in the trial for sure. Um, and that was just not something that anybody was that, that when it had, had any kind of, I don't know, like there, this was not something that was hidden. People knew about this. People weren't making any kind of uh, uh, like excuses for it. This is what we knew about F. Lee Bailey. He'd already had a DUI where he was defended by Shapiro. And so this is who he was when he came into the trial. So Nathan Lane is playing him that way and it's Nathan Lane doing it. So he's, you know, there's a little bit of comedy in it because Nathan Lane is a brilliant comedic actor. Uh, so that is a little bit cartoonish, but I think it calls for it. 
I don't know how much the Robert Shapiro character calls for a cartoonish performance, but I think we're getting a little bit of that. I'm, I'm curious what you think uh, about Travolta in general and just really about how his performance as Robert Shapiro has played out over the course of this show. Do you feel like it's detracted from the overall show? And, and, and are you enjoying the last two episodes more because he's really kind of in the background? I have been enjoying those episodes more because uh, he's in the background. And, <laughs> right. uh, you know, in the beginning, when we first started talking about this show, like, uh, and we talked about, like, what is this show ultimately going to be? We talked about it in the beginning of the year in our season preview or year long preview. And we were calling it Sharknado J. And is this just going to be like one of these like disaster movies where you just have all of these different famous actors in it? And Travolta, he is a producer on the show. So, you know, he is featured pretty prominently. But the Robert Shapiro character, and I don't know a lot about his actual involvement in it. I was watching uh, some of Harvey Levin from TMZ. He does like vlogs after each of these episodes. And he talks about he doesn't really know why they're making Robert Shapiro look that bad on this show and he comes off looking really bad there's that thing in the i believe it's the fourth episode where he's trying to get oj to take a plea deal and he walks in he comes up with this whole story about how maybe oj just came over and was gonna slash nicole's tires but then he sees her and ron goldman and just goes nuts and that he should uh just it was manslaughter it wasn't intentional and they should take that deal and they just basically, when he goes to Hawaii on vacation, they just steal all the files from him <laughs> and just like lock him out of the trial. So I do like less Robert Shapiro. I think that little bit of Travolta's uh, Robert Shapiro goes a long way. Yeah. And I mean, that incident you're talking about, not so much the file stealing incident, but the incident with the, hey, you should take a deal. And here's, I think, how we can get it. Um, apparently, according to Jeffrey Tubin's book, that played out very much like it occurred in the show mm -hmm. that there was this kind of behind the scenes thing where Shapiro was seen as a deal cutter that comes up in the show a lot that he was seen as a kind of guy who really wasn't he he was let, let me let me put it another way I it's I'm not I don't necessarily mean a deal cutter pejoratively because he was really good at getting people deals that probably shouldn't they, they shouldn't have got so like if a high profile celebrity was accused of a crime Shapiro pro could through his connections and through his sort of social kind of wrangling find a way to get the very best deal his client possibly could he wasn't a guy you hired to take you to trial and to cross-examine people and to beat the evidence and to do what ultimately happens with oj but he was the kind of guy that you would hire to get you the best possible deal you could get and i think that i that's what he was born and bred to do in terms of how he ran his practice and that's just not what oj ultimately thought that he would want once Johnny Cochran got involved and realized you could put on a case here that I think you could win, it doesn't even really have to involve much of the evidence, but we'll hammer every single bit of this case. We'll hammer the evidence. We'll hammer their experts, and we will bring race into this and hammer people's credibility. And so I think once that ball started rolling and Shapiro was out of the loop on that and came in and said, let's cut a deal, he did get kind of sh uh, shuffled aside in the case, and he does play lesser of a role. So I think we've seen the, the Shapiro drama. Like we've already seen the dissension in the defense team. We've already seen he and Johnny butting heads. We've already seen them publicly having issues going forward. He just doesn't play that big a role in the case. And I think for the context of the show, that's a very good thing. Anybody else that was a favorable person for you, giving you a thumbs up to, I, you know, I'm interested because we haven't seen the evidence really play out yet. Um, 
So I think the way that this could play out is we could see Rob Morrow, who plays Barry Sheck, uh, who, you know, very somewhat famously or probably best known for his work uh, on NBC's Ed or Northern Exposure. I'm sorry. Northern Exposure. Yeah. Sorry. I get the two confused because they're around at the same time. But yeah, he's he's kind of low key good uh, so far to me. I think he's playing this kind of like younger, kind of energetic kind of guy. He's going to play a key role in this trial once that blood evidence comes to play. And I think we could see a lot more of him really stepping forward. I've liked him kind of popping up on the show uh, as we've seen it. I don't know. Anybody else standing out for you, Rob? Uh, I've liked Evan Handler as Alan Dershowitz that I thought that uh, he's been pretty good. And I think that I didn't even realize it was Evan Handler for like, like, he seems very familiar. Like, who is that? Who is that? And then I eventually realized it was him. I said, oh, yeah, that's good. I totally uh, didn't even realize it was Evan Handler. So uh, good job there. And I did, I do have to say, uh, Connie Britton's uh, Faye Resnick, it was uh, over the top, but maybe just because I like Connie Britton so much, I thought she was good. Yeah, no, I love Connie Britton. And that not, I mean, it's it's not really that over the top when you, if you kind of look at the role Faye Resnick played in the case and the whole thing about the Brentwood, hello, Rob, hello, um, like that is, that's a real thing. Like that's something that was talked about in the case. The book did come out. She was uh, sort of, exactly what Connie Britton brought to the role. So I thought that that was kind of, you're right. That was kind of a great little, you know, just kind of a smaller performance. Uh, and I, I really like the way she, you know, she kind of popped on the show. For sure. Yeah. So let's talk about maybe some other people that it is not working. <laughs> who are, who are some of the people that you are uh, giving a guilty verdict to? Well, we talked about Robert Shapiro and John Travolta's role as Robert Shapiro. He's guilty. Uh, he's fingerprint him, Rob, like throw him in. He's done. Uh, he, you know, rack him up. I think that, you know, we could also talk that way about David Schwimmer playing Robert Kardashian. <laughs> if we're being honest, uh, Ross Kardashian is still alive and well. Uh, he has not again, faded into the background of the case. Thankfully, uh, that keeps us out of the Kardashians, but he is just, I mean, I don't know what his, he's sycophantic. He's sad. He's pathetic. He played all those things out early on. Uh, and I think that that made some sense because why else would he read the suicide note that seemed to be an admission of guilt on television? Yeah. Unless he was weird like that emotionally. So Uncle that's Juice. All. Uncle Juice. Yeah. Oh, your kids, your Uncle Juice is here. Yeah. <laughs> Ridiculous. So I don't know. The last David Schwimmer on the show going right. forward. The better He's also the gateway to more Kardashian stuff. Yeah. Which we don't. I mean, we don't need. Like, we don't need that. I think a lot of people have basically said that that's a major problem they have with the show and that other episodes have been better without them. It's just a different show. It's like the stuff with Marsha Clark and Johnny Cochran and Chris Darden. That is a top tier drama. It's, it's, it's fantastic. And then we go and uh, just get into this uh, cartoony Kardashian and Robert Shapiro, John Travolta stuff. And it's just, it completely takes me out of it. Yeah. And and, and me too. And I think that I understand the point they wanted to make. We talked about this a little bit at the, uh, when we did the kind of uh, the premiere recap where this was the trial of the century and it was being played out on TV. And these kids were raised in an environment where they realized their dad was a celebrity and on TV all the time and seeing their dad on TV had to have affected them. And that this trial more than anything we've really seen made celebrities out of random people. Um, a juror who was kicked off of the jury uh, became a, a, you know, had a center, had a, had a pictorial and playboy. Um, people wrote, sold book deals that were alternate jurors, Rob. 
they were alternate jurors kicked off. They sold, they had book deals, mm-hmm. like when they were only in the jury for a matter of a few months. So this was a sensational trial. So to see these people being made into celebrities and talked about on the nightly news all the time and all of that, for these kids to see that, there's no doubt it would have had an impact. If this show wants to suggest that's the toxic mess that created the sludge that is the Kardashians, fine. Like if they want to say that, fine. But I think that a little bit goes a long way and we've already had more than a little bit. So I'm, I'm done. I've had enough. I don't want to see any more. What about Judge Ito? I'm liking Judge Ito. I'm liking Judge Ito. I think that they, I think they've done a, a decent job of showing Judge Ito. We, we joked about it at the, at the top there about Judge Ito. Like, oh, Arsenio, so famous. Did you see this? I can't help but tell you. Um, but, you know, that is that was a huge aspect of Lance Ito. He's bringing in celebrities, giving people key trial access, seats, whatever. He knew about the TV. But the bigger aspect of Lance Ito that I don't think we've seen from the performance uh, or really, you know, and, and not that Kenneth Choi's doing anything wrong. I think it may be just sort of there haven't been the scenes to really play it out. Judge Ito was an equivocator, and he was probably doing more to try to not come off very negative throughout the trial and to try to be fair in instances where maybe he didn't even need to be fair, that it was ridiculous that he would even give people time to be heard on certain issues. And I think that that hasn't really come across on the show yet, that Judge Ito is doing kind of what other judges wouldn't do in terms of dragging the trial out by giving everybody their fair shake and really letting everybody have what they should have or what he thinks they should have, lest anyone give him any backlash about anything. So... If anything, I haven't seen that in the performance or the uh, or the characters kind of scenes. Uh, we might get some of that going forward. I would hope so. All right. How about the man of the hour? How about O.J. Simpson as played by Cuba Gooding Jr.? Are you in or out on the O.J. performance through six episodes? I'm mostly out. I mean, I don't know where you are. I think you're probably yeah. with me. Yeah. I almost wish OJ wasn't in the show. It's like, I, (laughs) I love this story about the people that are in this sort of insane trial that they didn't realize was going to have that maybe, and you know, maybe Johnny Cochran knew it was going to get like this, but for these other people on the prosecution side, like, I think that story is so interesting. And I just feel like, uh, you know, I I don't want to see OJ. You want the people versus no J is what you want. (laughs) I understand. I understand that. And it's interesting because they, I think they really do want to show a little bit of kind of the, the fact that OJ was a little bit of a loose cannon, that he was volatile, that he was whiny, that he was, that he was kind of uh, prone to doing the kind of things that would lead him to kill people ultimately, Um, that he maybe had anger issues, that he had all these other issues. The problem is that comes off as really one note. The issue is, let's let's say you give OJ nuance. Then what are you doing? Like you're humanizing a murderer? I think they have to be very careful with that. And I think that makes the performance very difficult. One thing I will say that we haven't seen a ton of, and maybe we'll see it with the glove, but if you'll recall, and I think one of the things that people who really watched the trial were very uncomfortable with is OJ was hamming it up a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. He was having the time of his life, uh, you know, for the cameras and showing that the, the glove doesn't fit and he was really smug, and I think the best scene so far that really captures how that trends from smug into really monstrous and creepy was the scene with the uh, the casket, and when he goes and, and kind of walks up there, mm-hmm. just to just to know that that happened and that a person was capable of doing that after having committed these crimes, 
I think that we haven't seen enough of that kind of crossing the line with the OJ role. And I, again, I don't want to knock Cuba for that because I don't see that. I don't see the scenes that are written where those choices could be made. It seems like the only choices he can make are the ones that are written for him, which is just whine and, and, you know, complain all the time. So I, I really think that's more than anything. That's what we've got. There's been one scene, but he wasn't even in the scene. He was on a conference call where he couldn't even really fire Shapiro. And he didn't yeah. even, he's just so like weak minded in that regard. And I don't mean stupid. I mean, he was not like, he couldn't, he didn't want to ever be the bad guy. So he couldn't say to Robert Shapiro, Bob, I don't want you on the case anymore. When, it, when push came to shove, they were trying to get that out of him. People were even taking sides against Robert Shapiro in that call. And Juice was just kind of like, well, you know, Bob, I think we should. Yeah, maybe like, you know, he was very kind of equivocating about that. That's a good scene that, that you know, kind of jibes with how Tubin wrote about O.J. Simpson in the book. But we haven't really seen a ton of that out of Cuba Gooding. Has that been balanced out for you by the appearance of Burt Cooper? Ah, that was where I was going to ask you, Rob. This is great. What were you? What What do you make of this? Is he wearing shoes? I want to know, is he wearing shoes, Rob? That's the first question. I have. Can I be honest? I don't really understand what he is. <laughs> well, what is he doing on this show? I think he's, uh, isn't he just like a, um, I think he's just like a kind of a famous, uh, a famous Vanity Fair reporter, maybe. I don't know who, who he's was, supposed to be. Yeah, he's like a famous Vanity Fair reporter. I think he's supposed to be George Burns. <laughs> where's the where's the cigar yeah like where's gracie no i uh r.i.p gracie yeah i don't know i don't know what he's he's a little guy so he's only like five foot five like he's not a giant hulking man so he's never going to be like this dominant presence in a room his presence in the case is always going to come off a little differently so i think that it's very interesting to kind of cast him in this role uh, because i think he's playing a very well-known person i just think that that is as far as i know that that's a like he's a crime writer right like is what's his name dominic dunn dominic like that dunn. is a yeah yeah that's a famous crime writer uh who i believe did cover the oj trial for vanity fair uh and so this is i think difficult not because vanity he's unfair not not vanity unfair uh yeah and not yeah not anything like that this is a this is a really famous person I'd like all these other people, but I don't know how much he's portraying the reality of that and why he's just there kind of as window dressing. It's just it's a weird role for him to play. And I don't know that he's going to play a bigger role in the case that he already has. So I don't really know why why we've got Robert Morris playing this, but I'm happy. Anytime Bird Cooper shows up, I'm happy. I want to know, Rob, who from the rest of the Mad Men cast would you be most happy to see if they pop in next episode as, let's say, like uh, somebody who wants to either a witness for, you know, the. The, the defense, somebody was out walking the streets that night or, or something like that. Who would you like to see from Mad Men? Uh, I would like to see uh, Sal Romano show up finally <laughs> so we can get the whereabouts of what ultimately happened to him. Oh, you want to see him actually as Sal <laughs> popping into this case? The older Sal. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was just out at night that night. My, my wife and I uh, had gone, you know, and seen Bye Bye Birdie. We had seen a show that night and then we came back and. Yeah, I was at a phone booth, uh, just minding my own business when all of a sudden, uh, yeah, that would be great. I'd love to see Sal Romero. It's a good call, Rob. We need to figure out what happened to Sal. Yeah. Where is Sal? Where is Sal? Uh, are you liking Larry King as himself? It works. <laughs> I got to say, it works. Uh, and uh, maybe that's a, that's, a big, that's a big mark in Larry King's favor in terms of him being the Crypt Keeper, but it, it does work. I don't, I don't, it doesn't, to me, come off like, Oh my God, this is just not, it works for me. I don't know. Does it not work for you? I can only hope that one day 
that maybe somebody, maybe from the, the world of podcasting, that would that this this little this little community of podcasting, maybe there's somebody that I talk to that I interview, and they will become so famous as that maybe 20 years later I could play myself interviewing an actor playing the person that I interviewed. Yeah, that would be great. And look, the craziest thing about the OJ trial, and believe me, Rob, there are so many crazy things, including things we haven't seen yet. The craziest thing about the OJ trial to me is at that time, Larry King was seen as this Romeo, that he was a legendary. How many times has the man been married? Like eight times. But he dated several people involved in the case. And it's like, what are you doing, Larry King? I don't remember. I wish I could tell you. Uh, I don't think people that have come up in the story yet. It's not like he and Marsha Clark went out on the town. Uh, but he was like using the case. Are you familiar case. with a Brentwood hello? <laughs> hello, Brentwood. Hello, hello, hello Brentwood. <laughs> Brentwood, hello. I mean, hello, Brentwood. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it's funny you mention that because I, the reason I bring this up is that he's, I guess, notorious for this. Connie Britton was on Jimmy Kimmel Live talking about how her role and kind of how she popped up. And she really told a story about how Larry King on the set um, was getting pretty saucy, real feisty. And, uh, oh you know, it was really kind of, yeah, playing it up. So um, he's like, he talking about how much he loved Faye Resnick and I'm back, baby. Oh, just really, yeah, he's pushing it. So he's like, uh, I think he said like, uh, I think he like came on to Connie Britton and, and you know, outside of the, the shooting. So Larry King, just a legendary Mac. Who knew? Who knew? All right. Yeah. Antonio, I know you followed very closely trying to find any discrepancies from what actually happened and the fiction of the show or what has been embellished for the show. What what have been some of the major uh, discrepancies between what actually went down and what we're seeing on this show? Well, so the first thing I should say, and Marsha Clark uh, gave a, a pretty solid interview that we can also link with Vulture uh, this week after this big Marsha Clark episode about what they're getting right and what they're not. And the key real takeaway in terms of changes or things that are different is that, uh, is that, is that the show ultimately is hitting the kind of tone and relationships and the, they're not falsifying drama in that regard. There was drama, for example, between Shapiro and between Johnny Cochran. Did everything play out exactly the way it did scene by scene, line by line in real life? We don't know, but we know that there was definitely drama. We know that there was a, there was a relationship between uh, Marsha Clark and between Christopher Darden. We don't know exactly what form that relationship mm. took. We don't, but the, but to say that, like, they, you know, Chris Darden wrote in his book that they would stay at, you know, they would sit up at night drinking wine, uh, in the, working on the case and listening to R&B music. So that scene, did they dance? No. Marsha Clark claims they never danced, but she said, like, you know, did we sit up Who's like that, that at lady? night? Who's that lady? <laughs> oh, I like this one, Rob. Yeah. So does. So does Kendrick Lamar. Uh, yeah, this is, uh, you know, that this is to some seal. We should. Oh, man, we can get a kiss from a rose. That would be great, Rob. Yeah, if we could get some kiss from a rose. That would be that'd be a big hit. Let's get perms. Rob, do you want to get perms together? Yes, I've seen you. Uh, I've seen you outside the uh, the barbershop there. I understand you have a hard time sometimes getting in, uh, getting in first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> getting a cut in line but not getting yeah. a haircut yeah getting cut in the cut but yeah this is uh we can get we get perms together but i i'm not going to get a perm without josh so if we're going to get perms we need to we need to have the three of us on board okay. but yeah they're nailing that they're they're really nailing like the essence of these things without really getting the specifics right so for example um they're you know they're the the incident with rosa lopez we saw this last episode that happened they they wanted to call her out of order because 
She was threatening to leave the country. She didn't like the publicity that she was getting. She wasn't sure she was changing her story. That all did happen. It didn't happen specifically that Marsha Clark was like, as soon as they brought her up, like, I can't do it. I've got childcare tonight. There was a, it was a longer thing where she had told the court what time she needed to leave that day. A long time before that, it wasn't going to be an issue. Then she was several hours late. Then when she showed up, Marsha Clark was like, Hey, listen, I'm going to have to leave court. Remember? And Judge Ida was like, Oh yeah, I remember. We'll do this tomorrow. Like it didn't play out exactly the way it played out on the show. So you change that a little bit for dramatic effect. But Marsha Clark was absolutely in the context of a divorce. Marsha Clark's husband absolutely did petition for full custody in the middle of this trial. Uh, they did publish a nude photograph of Marsha Clark in the National Enquirer. Uh, there were tabloids just commenting on her hairstyle and all these things. But she didn't get a makeover in the middle of the trial, according to Marsha Clark. Mm-hmm. According to Marsha Clark, her hair was growing out. She blew it out. One day she came in with a different look and everyone went nuts. It wasn't as though she went out and said, I've got to change my look in order in response to what people are saying. So there, it's, it's just little changes mainly that they're making that have a big effect. And, and the funny thing is, Rob, a lot of the biggest scenes, the things you're like, that couldn't have happened. There's no way that Johnny Cochran goes and drops the N-word to Chris Darden after this uh, huge rant in court about it. And that's exactly what happened. So mm-hmm. even the, these big moments that seem like there's no way it happened, that they did happen that way. But there's little changes. Like the other thing in this last episode, you see Johnny Cochran laughing it up uh, with the guy from True Blood, uh, Chris Bauer, uh, laughing it up outside the court about, oh, I can't remember that guy. Like, oh, we used to do this. This is great. And then he mentions Simi Valley, and it comes yeah. up outside with Johnny Cochran. And then Johnny Cochran brings it up in court. And it's this major problem because that's where the Rodney King police live. Well, the Simi Valley detail was, you know, they did get it out of that guy, but it was got the, the person who got it wasn't Johnny Cochran right before court. It was the defense's investigator kind of interviewing him uh, before, you know, he was going to testify for the prosecution. That detail came out in the interview. The defense's investigator knew they could use it. And Johnny Cochran used it in court. So it didn't play out exactly like it played out on screen. And there's a lot of little things like that happen. Okay. Antonio, do you want to get into some of these questions that we have from the listeners? We have a lot. I would love to. I would love to, Rob. We have to, I, I, want, I want to know what the people have to say about the people versus OJ. Okay. All right. Uh, do you want to start off, Antonio? Yeah. Uh, so this is a question. We, we put out a call on Twitter. Of course, you can always tweet us uh, about the shows that we're talking about here on Post Show Recaps or any other ideas that you have. But we put out a call on Twitter to the people uh, who want to engage about this show. Um, we said this one, for example, let's start with this, Rob. From Survivor Central uh, asked, isn't it kind of messed up how the Simpson kids have no role, yet the Kardashians are shoehorned in at every turn? I would not say that I was missing the Simpson kids. I think that the Kardashian kid thing is annoying, but I understand why they're there. I understand the, the relevance, but I haven't been missing the Simpson kids. Did you feel like the Simpson kids have a bigger role that you feel like uh, the show has ignored? Are we talking about Bart and Lisa? I'm not sure. Uh, no, this is it, I, the look there. There are two different sets of Simpson uh, kids. And I think that that's that's the first thing. Um, and the the first. So you've got the two young kids that OJ had with Nicole. And I think that you you can't really uh, bring them into the trial too much without it being super manipulative them crying we did see earlier in the season there was a voicemail that the daughter left like mommy where are you can you come get us from the police station what's happening 
that's a, a voicemail, unfortunately, that actually was left. That did happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we saw that uh, play out with Nicole and OJ's kids. I think probably the more interesting kind of role that we haven't really seen. The reason I think it's more interesting is that some people speculate that Jason Simpson, OJ's son from a previous marriage or previous relationship, uh, may have actually had a role uh, in the killings, uh, that he may have had a role in the crime. Uh, people have suggested that Jason Simpson uh, has you know, anger problems. There, there's a lot on record about Jason Simpson. So he hasn't really played a bigger role in this case. We saw him uh, kind of running out of the house uh, when OJ was after the Bronco chase. We've seen him in the show. Uh, he's a character in the show, but he hasn't been a bigger character in the show. And I think that, you know, you could say that could we get a Jason Simpson scene instead of every Kardashian Simpson, or every Kardashian scene we've had? Yes. And maybe that would be more interesting. So I think that there's something there with Jason Simpson for sure. Then OJ's daughter is the other uh, kind of character that could play a role. She does testify in the trial, uh, but she didn't really play a huge role in the trial and doesn't have the kind of um, salacious sort of background as Jason Simpson, so there isn't as much there. Okay, this is from uh, Laura Olson wants to know, with the issues like the DNA tampering hold water today, and what about the knife that they found that they were talking about last week? Can he be tried again? All right, first thing, Antonio, the DNA evidence from the OJ case, just how big of a quantum leap have we made in that regards from 1994 to today? I think we've made a lot of improvements. Anybody who watched Making a Murderer, uh, we, that was talked about in that series. Uh, we, you know, that that was you, you and Akiva and Alex Chester talked about that here at post show recaps. Uh, so there, there is, there has been significant growth in that area. Um, that said, the you know the we haven't really covered the significant concerns with the blood evidence. Uh, we haven't seen the full expert kind of testimony here. Um, that plays as much of a part in the defense's case, I believe. Uh, as anything else. So we will see some of that. And some of these experts really get hammered uh, in, in court, kind of open court. I think we're going to see that on the show. Uh, as far as the tampering goes, I mean, look, it's not like the DNA evidence wasn't good in this case. And it's not like there, you know, there were some problems th- with the case, but it was really questionable. I think the bigger issue was how complex that evidence was at the time and how it was harder to understand. So I think o- the the problems with OJ um, maybe they would be presented better these days. The DNA evidence would be people are more used to it. it, it it's more understandable uh, to, to lay juries that aren't, you know, scientific experts. So I think it, the evidence may have played better modern times yeah. rather than, you know, the tampering. As far as the other question about the knife, I think Laura's talking about not the knife last week on the show, but the knife that was allegedly found mm-hmm. <laughs> on OJ Simpson's property that was in the news. Rob, did you see this? Yeah, that there was actually like breaking news. I was getting like alerts on my devices about a knife was found at OJ Simpson's house and it made it sound like, oh, this is they found the murder weapon. This is the the knife that was used in the murder was found at OJ's house. Yeah, and Tia Town Sean had also tweeted a very similar question. Uh, this so you know the 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 this, the thing here and Marsha Clark has weighed in on this. There was a knife allegedly found at OJ's house. There there's been some reconstruction and some uh, some kind of shifting in the landscape. There things have been torn up, dug up, uh, knocked around, and apparently during one of those processes, a person who was working at the, the the house found a knife at the property, and that knife was given to an LAPD officer. You know because you would that's what you would do. You'd call the police and tell mm-hmm. them. Hey, found a knife at the OJ Simpson house. Maybe this is the murder weapon, like whatever. Um, that 
Officer didn't do anything with it. Hmm. <laughs> he sat on it and didn't do anything with the evidence for a very long time. What, like a couple days? Oh, yeah. He went back to Simi Valley. No, Rob, for like 15 years oh. like, you know, or more, 25 years, however long it's been since this trial is essentially, you know, give or take a few years, how this, how long he sat on this wasn't found a couple months ago. This hmm. was found decades ago. And then at the end of his career, he's, you know, retiring or whatever. He's like, oh, you know, I've got this piece of evidence. I need this is just this, you know, this one thing that I've got this hangnail I've got to cut off before I quit. I better turn this in. So and it was because of the show, right, that he had realized from the TV show. Yeah, I think that was part of it. I think that brought it back into the news. No, I don't know what this guy's deal is. You know, the, the kind of secret thing. And this comes up in Tubin's book a lot. It's come up on the show a little bit. Um, especially with the previous calls that Nicole made is that OJ really had such a cozy relationship with the LAPD. He would let them come over to his house and use his tennis courts. Uh, he would hang out with certain officers from the LAPD several times in the course of a month. These were his friends socially. Um, he was not somebody who was uh, anti-police and the police were not anti him. He'd done a lot of work with them and for them. The police are my friends. Uh, and I think that Schwimmer mentioned that, you know, uh, Ross Kardashian mentions that. In the show, like a lot of these cops are here all the time, you know, and they, oh, that might be that might be a good thing for the show. Like we might for the trial. We may bring that up. So it is, I think, here's life imitating art or art imitating life here. A police officer who gets evidence on the OJ trial does nothing with it. Right. I don't know what his motivation was. So as far as it goes legally, just quickly, there would be chain of custody issues with whether that evidence was even trustable in trial, whether it had been preserved properly, whether it had, you know, you could you could trace the custody of it. And. I don't think it would ever even come up in trial. There's also double jeopardy issues mm-hmm. where, you know, OJ's already been found innocent of this murder. Spoiler alert. So in a criminal trial, he's really probably not going to be able to be retried absent some really specific circumstances like a federal involvement uh, or things that aren't just, just not going to happen from this knife coming into play. And then the third question about the knife would be, would there even be any evidence on it? Would DNA be able to be preserved for that long in the condition that it might have been? Um, the answer to that is possibly. So I do believe they are doing some testing on it. I do not think it is believed that this knife is the knife that was used in the commission of the crime. I think it doesn't fit the profile mm-hmm. that the medical experts believe uh, the weapon that was used in the crime would have fit. Yeah. But how did this become such a big story then? It seems like, oh, like it's definitely not the knife that was used in the murder, but it did seem like that was sort of like um, not discussed until well after they did press conferences and all this stuff yeah i don't know man uh you you tell me what people want nowadays rob you know know, it's just this is this is the world we live in how are you getting an alert on your phone about this i mean it is still the trial of the century even though we're in a new century so uh this is uh i think people want to find evidence people would love to find out who did this uh and people would love to you know you know know more about the case than we already know people would love new updates on this thing so there you go. We're, we're craving it, Rob. We want more. Okay. What else, Antonio? So this is a question uh, that I think that this comes from uh, a, the great AJ Mass, uh, ESPN's AJ Mass, who, post, who podcasts with us frequently here at Post Show Recaps. AJ asked us, if you didn't know this actually happened, how would you rate the script's believability? Uh, pretty implausible. I think that the <laughs> fact that I know it did happen really does help the show, but I feel like, come on. Stop what's it. the what's the most implausible thing that's happened so far as far as you're concerned with the uh 
with the trial as we've seen it? Like, what's the most unbelievable or ridiculous thing that we've seen play out so far? Hard to really say. I, I mean, uh, some of the stuff in this last episode about uh, Marsha Clark and her hairstyle um, when she goes into the grocery store and is buying Tampax. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if that was ever confirmed or denied of what the kid in the grocery store ends up saying to her uh that that seemed uh pretty off base yeah i mean i think that i i think that in the context of just this short episode there's not enough they could do to show what marcia clark was enduring Mm -hmm. and that was before social media can you imagine rob like what it would be like nowadays well hopefully she doesn't have a twitter yeah if she had a twitter uh, the backlash to the backlash like the the people responding to the people who were hating there would be an entire a self-devouring cycle of feedback. It would be a feedback loop of just totally, you know, vicious eating uh, of itself on the people criticizing Marsha, people criticizing the people criticizing Marsha, people criticizing those people. We love to do this these days, Rob. So that would be existing and just feeding off of itself in our frenzy on a day-to-day basis for certain. Uh, but yeah, it's not that crazy. Uh, the stuff with Johnny Cochran changing the house around is nuts to me. I think people are like, how could that happen? I had uh, the great Johnny mm-hmm. Silvera was asking me that question as that episode was airing. Like, how can this happen? But it wasn't an active crime scene anymore. So you could redecorate it however you want. And, uh, you know, they, they took some advantage of that. And that, you know, that all played out that, that kind of way. I mean, so this, this whole trial is truly unbelievable. But I don't know. Sometimes the truth is stranger than fiction for sure. Okay. What other questions do we have, Rob? Um, how about Edward Morris wants to know, this may be too late, but was Judge Ito that much of a fame whore as the show tells us? More. I think more. More? Uh, I think more. Yeah, I really do think more. Again, and I'm, I'm basing this on reading Jeffrey Tubin's book again, which, you know, is available now if you're not watching the commercials in the show where they pimp it out every episode. Uh, but it's, uh, it's, you know, it's an interesting book. It's not, eh, people have said it's not totally accurate, but According to Tubin's book, Ito was more of a fame whore. That's what I kind of remember. I remember the dancing Itos. I remember Jay Leno. I remember kind of Judge Ito being a becoming a celebrity because of this trial and him loving it. So that was that. I think that the show's not even played that out. I think we have more to come on that front, to be honest. Okay. Brendan Fitzpatrick wants to know: Marsha Clark, Chris Dard, and Cochran. You could only give an Emmy to one. Who gets it? <sighs> Man. I got to go Sarah Paulson as Marsha Clark and it's killing me because Courtney B. Vance is doing such a great job. But Sarah Paulson playing kind of the strong yet uh, vulnerable, the just all the shades of Marsha Clark that she's playing. I She's got it. I mean, she takes it for me. How about you? Yeah, Get back to me at the end of the series. But after this week, after the Marsha, 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 brilliant uh, episode, I would have to say, give it to Sarah Paulson. All right. All right. Yeah. And, and I think that that's I can I can we're on the same page there. Um, Debbie Sapp wanted to know, replace Furman with a clean plate officer. What's the likelihood of a different outcome from a legal perspective for me? I don't think there's a different outcome, but do you, you know, do you think we haven't really seen the, the, the kind of other shoe dropping on Furman yet? Do you, you think that's going to be presented in the context of this show as the key thing in the trial? Well, he was the person that they opened the show with. I think that's going to be a big deal. They closed the fifth episode, I believe, with him sort of uh, polishing, polishing his Nazi medals, or at least the case for his Nazi medals. So I think that there's going to be a lot of significance to Mark Furman. Yeah, I think that typified just in general the kind of issues that were present in the case. I don't think that Furman was the straw that broke the camel's back, but and I'm not sure how the show's going to present it, but he, I think the glove is a big, is a big, big, big issue. I think that there are other, the jury selection is just a huge issue. Like 
people were put on the jury, regardless of race or, or background or anything that just weren't going to be sympathetic to the prosecution's case. Uh, you know, that, that they could have, they could have decided they didn't belong on the jury, but Martha, Marsha Clark had a lot of faith uh, that the people that were on the jury would respond well to the prosecution's case. And that just wasn't the case. So uh, I think that's a much bigger issue than any singular witness. What else do we have, Rob? Megan Z wants to know, uh, Clark has said about Darden that the show is delivering the essence of our relationship. What is the essence of Rob and Antonio's relationship? <laughs> I, think, I think you're looking at it, right? Is this it? I mean, uh, when we, you know, podcasting together, Rob, speaking to each other through microphones. I, I don't know. We haven't, uh, we haven't shared a lovely moment with uh, the Isley brothers playing in the background yet. Right. That's the essence. The essence of Josh and my relationship is a little bit like that with pizza involved. Um, what, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. Um, is it more similar to the OJ and Rob Kardashian relationship? Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, I'd love to have your kids call me Uncle Juice, Rob. That would be great if that could happen. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. That would, yeah. Uncle. Yeah. Uncle and Uncle Tonio. We can go with that. <laughs> Uncle Tonio. Perfect. Uh, yeah. <laughs> How about that? We could do that. All right, Rob. And I think finally here, this is a good note to end on uh, because we can bring it home. Mike, not in Parma, asks. Would Rob's kids ever cheer Sester Nino over and over at the TV if he was at a press conference? How would that play out, Rob? Uh, I think that Nicole would change the channel and say, let's watch something else. <laughs> let's watch something interesting. <laughs> Daddy's on TV. Oh, it's all right. You know, we can look. Ellen's on TV as well, kids. This is fine. We can go to Ellen instead. Yeah, I think the hey, somebody's on TV really does not hold the same weight with with like younger kids now because of all the different things between YouTube and airplay and stuff like that. Like if I was growing up and somebody I knew was on TV, it would be a huge moment. I think that for kids now, because the TV is just another screen that they look at, I think that it's just not that big of a deal. Yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's well put. I really do. And that's a shame because I always every time I see local news cameras, anywhere out like the most recent time i was seeing the uh i was seeing star wars on like the, the second night it was out and the news cameras were everywhere and we got out of the theater and like hey do you want to be interviewed about star wars absolutely and i just want to say the most ridiculous things i can say like just be a, a total a, anything short of baba booey is what i want to bring to that interview and they usually don't make the air as a result so yeah. that's unfortunate but i i'm trolling that left and right hoping that you know my big break is coming it's coming. Hang in there. You, Next Star Wars just, comes out in a couple of years. Yeah, I'll just I'll, I'll go full Wookiee by then. I just won't touch any 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 of my body hair until then, and we'll see what happens. And maybe I can uh, maybe I can go full Wookiee, and we'll uh, we'll we'll play it out that way. All right, Antonio, what's the hashtag here? Oh my gosh, I don't know. <laughs> I just said Uncle Tony, and I'm still laughing about it. But do you have any suggestions? No J. Yeah, no J. How about that? N O J. That'll work. Okay. Nodge. Nodge. All yeah. right. Uh, so that's going to do it here for us, Antonio. What's coming up next week on the most shows recapped? Next week, it's a show you can watch the first two episodes of right now on Sundance TV's website. It's a show called Hap and Leonard. It's a limited show that is running. Uh, they're only going to do six episodes. It's an adaptation of a series of stories uh, by novelist Joe Lansdale. Um, and the Hap and Leonard kind of roles are played by uh, James Purifoy, who people probably know as Mark Antony from HBO's Rome, uh, and Michael K. Williams, who people probably know as Omar from The Wire. Uh, Christina Hendricks from Mad Men also makes an appearance, as Rob does Jimmy Simpson, uh, <laughs> who is uh, one of your favorites from House of Cards. Where's Cashew? Right? Is Cashew going to be in it? Not sure. We're going to have to <laughs> tune in next week to Mo, Show, Mo Show's recap to find out. Yeah. Okay. So very excited about that. 
Uh, also, we have been really going through the House of Cards season four on post show recap. So you can catch that. All of that we are, I believe, at the time of this recording, uh, about nine episodes have been recorded of our season four recaps of House of Cards. Also, Antonio and I, the start of every week, Better Call Saul recaps as well. Uh, looking forward to getting into episode five. Antonio, can you believe it that we're going to be halfway through this Better Call Saul season? I can't believe it. I mean, it, it's just, this is, it's going so fast and not as fast as your House of Cards recaps, which I'm loving. Uh, but Better Call Saul, for a show that it's taking its time, uh, we're speeding through the season. So I, I can't wait to find out where we go next with Slip and Jimmy. Okay. And then also, uh, well, we got all of our Walking Dead coverage as well. Uh, look for that this weekend as well. All right. So, Antonio, uh, very excited to uh, be back again next week to talk more TV with you and every single week on Most Shows Recap. Looking forward to your comments on postshowrecaps.com. Anything else, Antonio? No, just I am really looking forward to Happen Leonard. It looks like kind of a dark comedy, great setting. Uh, looks beautiful. So this, if you have any kind of access to Sundance TV, go to their website, see if you can watch the shows for free. Uh, and, and I can't wait to talk about it next week. Hey, okay, follow Antonio on Twitter. He's at AC Mazzaro. That's with two Z's, one R. I am Rob at Rob Sestrino. We'll talk to you again soon. Take care, everybody. Bye.